what you're not getting to see is me trying to two-step with Stuart back there. Uh, social distance two-step, and he was not having it. He's afraid to admit he doesn't know how, even though he was born in Texas. I know how. Oh, he says he knows how. Prove it. Come, no, not really. I'm just kidding. Join me as we pray this morning. God of joy. Be with us this day as we celebrate the resurrection of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let the light of your love flood into our lives and through us to all those who have been captured by darkness. That the light may give them healing, freedom, and hope. As we witness the surprise of the women at the tomb, the appearance of the Savior to Mary, and hear good news brought to the disciples, let us remember that this good news exists for us today. Darkness does not win. Death is not victorious. Christ is risen for us, for you, and for me. We are raised with Christ to a new life of hope and service. Let the joy of this good news swirl around us in our hearts, O God. Let excitement for service and ministry burst forth from us. Let us truly be the Easter people that you have called us to be. For we ask these things in the name of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. I am going to read to you this morning the resurrection story that's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. If you want to follow along at home, I'll give you about maybe 15 or 20 seconds to to find this. Hopefully you have a Bible Uh, gathered up with you. If not, that's okay. I promise I'll read every word as accurately as possible. This is John chapter 20, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 8. Actually, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. I wish I had said I'm going to read the whole thing, but we're going to stop there. Early in the morning... On the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Peter and the other disciple left to go to the tomb. They were running together, but... The other disciple ran faster than Peter and was the first to arrive at the tomb. Bending down to take a look, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Following him, Simon Peter entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. He also saw the face cloth that had been on Jesus' head. It wasn't with the other clothes, but was folded up in its own place. Then the other disciple, the one who arrived at the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. I am going to continue on. Mary stood outside near the tomb, crying. As she cried, she bent down to look into the tomb And she saw two angels dressed in white, seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the foot. The angels asked her, woman, why are you crying? She replied, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they put him. 
As soon as she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Don't hold on to me, for I haven't yet gone up to my father. Go to my brothers and sisters and tell them, I'm going up to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene left and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. Then she told them what he said to her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May God give us wisdom and courage for interpretation. And may God give us wisdom and courage as we try to apply the truth of Scripture to our lives. Amen. There is no question that this Easter is different. It's unlike any Easter that I can remember, and I'm certain that it's unlike any Easter that you can remember, and I'm hopeful that it's the last time that we will ever experience Easter in this way. Churches all over the world are empty today, not filled by the crowds that we had hoped for. Not even gatherings of any meaningful size are happening, really, we hope. A lot of us are feeling isolated, unsure even of when we might go out again, and many of us are afraid. We're afraid for our safety, we're afraid for our lives, we're afraid for the lives of our loved ones, we're afraid for our futures. I wonder what, if any value, my words will have, what comfort they may bring This is certainly a very different Easter. But strikingly, this Easter is not that different from the very first Easter. The passages that I just read in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, in it we find some really uh, striking similarities. After all, there are no crowds gathered to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. The crowd that John portrays, happened two times. The first was on the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Yes, there was a large crowd, John talks about, that gathered there. And then there was another crowd that gathered at his trial and followed him on the path to Golgotha and then quickly disappeared. So there was a crowd, but on the resurrection morning, the crowd was gone. What we find described... And the Gospel of John is a small gathering, a woman and two men, incredibly small group of people, well under the prescribed limits of social distancing. They were the first witnesses to the resurrection. They were the first invited to worship the one who embraced death in order to defeat it. Similarly, 
the rest of the disciples lived in isolation and fear. John talks about them being cloistered and huddled together, and as we say these days, hunkering down behind locked doors out of fear for their safety. They were reeling from the brutal heartache of watching their friend and their teacher be murdered just two days earlier. They were unsure of what the future held, and it was unimaginable to them that it would be happening the way that it was happening. Sound familiar? Two years ago was my first Easter celebration here at Morningstar. I don't remember it at all. That first year of ministry here was a blur. What I remember about the Christmas Eve service is that there was no carpet up here, and there was no carpet out here, and there were no windows out there, and the stained glass windows weren't up, and my office had no ceiling. In fact, most of the church had no ceiling. That's what I remember of Christmas Eve, and I remember that I bombed big time on my sermon because I was so nervous. I'm assuming the same thing happened my first Easter also. That way I've just kind of like locked it out of my memory. But last year, my second Easter here, oh man, I remember it. And I was so looking forward to that experience again where from front to back, every seat was full, extra chairs were added in. I think Marianne grabbed every church, every chair in this church and put them around I was shocked at how many people showed up for Easter, and I can't wait to do that with you all again. In fact, I'm hoping that this summer we can celebrate Easter. Instead of doing Christmas in July, maybe we can do Easter in July. But God never promised that our worship services would always be grand and full. God never promised that our churches would overflow with people, that our economy would continue growing. God never guaranteed us to have good health. And God never guaranteed that our lives and future would unfold as we had hoped for or as we have planned. God, in and through the incarnated Christ, crucified and risen, has never promised any of that. Rather, at the heart of the gospel is the promise that God is both with us and for us at all times and through all conditions, in sorrow or joy, triumph or tragedy, gain or loss, peace or fear, scarcity or plenty, God is present. This promise is twofold, in fact. In the cross, God promises that While always available to us, God meets us especially where we most need God and often least expect to find God in hardship and struggle and loss and death and fear. Because of the cross, there is no experience that we can have that God doesn't understand. No matter how difficult or awful, And no person, no matter how sinful or how lost, is truly God-forsaken. 
Because God is always where we most need God to be. And in the resurrection, God promises that all the harsh realities of this life, hardship, struggle, loss, fear, disease, hunger, death, pandemics, that these realities, though painful, they most certainly are, do not have the last word. The resurrection promises that God's light is more powerful than darkness. That God's love is stronger than any hate. And that the life God offers through Christ prevails over all things, even death itself. I'm struck in this story in the Gospel of John by one particular word. Mary. It's not really an address. It's not really a proclamation of anything. It's just Jesus simply calling his friend by her name. And suddenly... She sees and believes and trusts and is brought to new life. At the heart of this story is the recognition that resurrection calls out not simply the defeat and death and promise of life, the defeat of death and promise of life, which, by the way, are really, really big things. But the God is accessible to us. The God will not abandon us. The God desires more than anything to be in relationship with us. The God continues to call us by name. St. Francis of Assisi supposedly said that we're to preach the gospel. And use words if we must. The the heart of the idea is that we preach the gospel through the way that we live. It's beautiful to think about that. But I don't know about I don't know about you, but in my life, there comes a time when I have to use words to explain the way that I live. In fact, the apostle Paul tells us to always be ready for a reason to the answer of the question of why do you have hope. We always have to be prepared to use words. When I was in college and first really, really understood that Jesus had called me by name, I used to carry around in my back pocket a written out reason for why I have hope. And one day... I was delivering furniture. I used to be a furniture relocation engineer. That's what I told people to make it sound fancy. I was delivering furniture to Rudoso, and we were, my friend and I were going over the pass, headed down towards White Sands. And he had recognized that my life had changed, and he said, what happened? Why has your life changed? Why, why do you believe these things? And I reached in my back pocket, And I read to him my reason. I wonder if you wonder like I do. 
what we can possibly say this week that would bring other people hope. And perhaps you're wondering what value or meaning or significance your words can have in the wake of the fear and isolation and maybe even the biggest fear of economic struggles that our friends are having that are caused by this pandemic. But these words, Jesus knows us, and Jesus calls us by name. They're not insignificant. Like the disciples of old, We may just hear them anew and find faith and courage not simply to survive, but to flourish. I think it's worth remembering that this small gathering of disciples, once they were called and named and sent by Jesus, they changed the stinking world which I think might just happen again. Wherever this Sunday finds you, know that you're in my prayers. I pray for your strength. I pray for your confidence. And I pray for your courage. And oh, I hope you know that I pray prayers of gratitude for your faith. In the name of our creator, redeemer, and sustainer.